0: This morning, we continue our series of reflections on the first letter of Peter, which was written to Christians who were living in places that were not operating um, as as societies by Christian ethics or norms or expectations, places like Bithynia, which you see behind me, it's um, modern-day Turkey uh, near the Black Sea. So the author of this letter, whether it was Peter or one of Peter's disciples, sought to encourage the Christians in these places, not only to remain committed to their Christian identity and what they understood and believed about themselves and about God and Christ, but also encouraging them to maintain their Christian calling, their Christian activity, their active living, to live in ways that help these non-Christian communities to understand and to choose to adopt themselves a commitment to Christianity. They were to be the light unto the world, not not hidden under a bushel basket, but shining in these other places. Uh, Two weeks ago, we reflected on the author's reminder that Christians are people of a living hope, uh, a hope in God and what God has promised to do in and through us unto all the world, a hope that can never be defeated or misplaced rather than placing our hope in things that can be defeated or misplaced. Empires, leaders, buildings, programs, dollars, possessions, power, success, etc. Last week, we reflected on how the natural outcome of our Christian faith. Faith, which means not just believing in Jesus, but believing Jesus and trusting Jesus enough to be who he calls us to be is his followers in all things. The natural outcome of that trust is that we participate in salvation, that we experience salvation, which is not just a a ticket to heaven someday for some, but is God's eternal work of remaking and restoring all things here on earth until it is a place of peace again. So this morning, we hear this author begin to describe The shape that our lives as the Christian community in the world take when they are built upon this foundation of living hope and trusting faith. In this part of the letter, we hear three specific invitations for how to intentionally shape our Christian living upon the foundation of our hope and faith, preparing our minds for action, disciplining ourselves, and seeking to be holy. So that first invitation, prepare your minds for action, as it's written in our translation. Uh, that's, that's not a wholly literal translation. Uh, what the author actually wrote more literally was, gird the loins of your minds. <laughs> so in a previous week and talking uh, about how the author of this letter used the blood of Christ as an intentional allusion to this promise of God's protection in the Passover, um we, we named that this letter was primarily to a Hebrew audience. And this is another such intentional allusion to Hebraic themes. When, when they would have heard anything about the girding of loins, they would have immediately recalled the instructions given to their ancestors by God just prior to the Exodus happening. When the girding of their loins prepared them to do something, prepared them for uh, a new action, leaving Egypt behind in these new lives of intentional partnership with God in accordance with the Abrahamic covenant, that they would become God's means of blessing and reshaping the world, that they were going to go out into the world in this new action. Whereas the story of Exodus then was about a physical loin girding, you know, get your bodies ready to move. The author here is inviting them to a mental loin girding, focus, strengthen, center your minds so that you are ready to commit your mental energy and functioning to perceiving God's direction, discerning possibilities for how to implement that direction, and then direction uh, directing the actions of your tongue and your body to carry out those implementations. In other words, your minds aren't just meant in this place, to believe something about God, but uh, your minds are meant to be a means of translating what you believe into words and actions. Maybe we know what it's like uh, for our minds to be left out of the process of deciding what we do or say. Maybe Maybe we know what it's like to say in hindsight something to the effect of, I really didn't think that through. I just reacted. I just sort of blindly did that or said that. I wish I would have been more thoughtful about that thing that I said or did. Maybe we know what it's like to realize that our body has these other mechanisms for making decisions about what we do and say, rather than just our mind. I can remember all those times leaving my two grandmothers' houses, just agonizingly, painfully full of dinner and dessert. And learning that my stomach could make decisions about what to say or do that my mind would very much have disagreed with if given the chance. Similarly, our desires of all sorts can arouse irrational logic and compulsions that, if given the chance, uh, our discerning and thoughtful minds would refute. But perhaps the strongest opponent of the mind in decision making is fear. The self-defense mechanisms that have evolved within us to make us quickly reactive to fear they are a double-edged sword. They can protect us from actual threats but if given free reign and left unchallenged they can also, Overpower and shut down the rationality and intentionality of the mind that we need to be fully aware and fully human. So, a critical part of any life of spirituality, rather than just a life of pure physicality in, in animal nature, is the intentional girding of the loins of the mind so that the mind is ready to acknowledge these inputs from other places, from the stomach, the desires, these very reactive fear response mechanisms of the body. uh, So that the mind is ready to hear what these other systems have to say, but not just back away and let them make the final decision, rather to be discerning and make an intentional choice regarding the course of action that we are to take. This is not a denial of the body and these other systems telling us something, but it's the addition of checks and balances within the determination of our actions and words. This is learning when the the mind needs to tell the stomach that it's time to stop eating brownies and needs to tell the desires that they will lead to selfish and unhealthy and harmful places and needs to tell the reactive systems of the body that the threat that they they are perceiving is not actually real, or that while it may be real, it is not as significant as feared and can be embraced and endured with hope rather than simply avoided with fear. A critical part of being a Christian is this intentional effort to prepare our minds to do more than believe some things. We're always to prepare our minds for action. We're to prepare and strengthen our minds to help us move beyond this temptation of living our days in pursuit of our desires and to help us move beyond the reactiveness, self focus, and isolation of fear driving our living. We're to prepare for action because being a Christian means participating in the work of Christ to love, help, heal, feed, clothe, house, embrace, include, and reconcile all people in this world until it's remade into his kingdom come on earth. And so, church, tell your mind it's time to gird its loins for action because we've got work to do. The second invitation in this part of the letter translated as discipline yourselves, more literally says in the Greek, be fully sober-minded. And this word sober-minded has a much broader and metaphorical meaning than than what we may think is one specific invitation to not drink too much alcohol. It means to live more generally with self-control, clear judgment, and presence of mind, and to live uninfluenced by those other voices and forces, whether external voices and forces like human leaders or money or power or addiction, or internal voices like desires and fear that would tend to make us irrational and disconnected from God's intention. The author gives the Christian community two directives in order to help protect the sobriety of the mind. And we can understand how most translations connect these to the practice of discipline. We are to discipline ourselves such that we are placing all of our hope where it belongs, in the way and the grace of Jesus. Maybe we know how much discipline we do or don't have in this department. As we ask ourselves week after week in this place of worship, Whether we are placing our hope in all our days, in other people or other things, leaders, money, success, comfort, etc., or are we placing our hope in God's promise in Jesus to include our participatory lives in this global movement of salvation to restore all things. So we wonder what daily practices might we add in order to better discipline ourselves To live as though our hope is in God's promise and activity, and not in the promises and actions of other voices and other forces. And the second discipline. We are to discipline ourselves such that we are no longer conformed to the desires that we formerly had when we were ignorant, ignorantly unknowing of the way and will of Jesus, before we understood our place within the community and the work of God. This echoes Paul's invitations, uh, the invitation to the Gentiles in Rome to do the same. When he wrote, do not be conformed to the patterns of this world, but transformed in your living by the renewal of your minds. Choosing lives that conform to what Jesus asks of us rather than lives that conform to either what we want for ourselves or what the world tells us our lives should look like as consumers, workers, political participants, et cetera. That takes a lot of discipline. And so what daily practices might we add in order to better discipline ourselves, to choose the way and the will of Jesus rather than the way of the self or the ways of the world? Third invitation. Be holy. Be holy as Christ was holy. Be holy in all your conduct. This is often gravely misunderstood. The invitation to be holy is not a mandate or a prerequisite. This is not describing what is demanded of us as part of some conditional transaction between us and God. Being holy is not about being obedient to the right laws, doing the right things, avoiding the right things, having the right beliefs, Or else God won't love, accept, and help because we're not good enough and not holy enough. That is not what the scriptures are talking about when they compel us to be holy. The word for holy in both the Hebrew scriptures and the Greek New Testament literally means to be set apart from, to be different from. And it's critical to note that holiness Is about being set apart from and different from the norms and the desires that are opposed to God. Norms and desires. And not about being set apart from and different from other people, as though we somehow place ourselves into some other moral category than others. Being holy is not a descriptor of the totality of a person's individual moral categorization by God, as if someone is categorically holier, better, in right standing before God, and as if someone else could be categorically unholy, worse, in bad standing before God. Rather, being holy is a descriptor of particular words, attitudes, And actions of any and all people. If a word, an attitude, an action is born of a selfish desire, reactionary fear, or a norm of our culture that is not godly or aligned with God's intentions of salvation and peace, then it is unholy. That does not mean the individual is bad or an unholy person or forever outside of God's good grace. What it means is that the lack of mental loin girding and discipline allowed them to participate in something that was unholy. And maybe we know that church people can be just as unholy, if not more so, than people who aren't church people. With intentional mental loin girding and discipline, that same individual, church person or not, is absolutely capable of being holy in word and deed. Again, this can describe all of us, every human being of every race and color and age and creed with preparation and discipline. We're all capable of choosing words and actions that are holy, that are in alignment with God's will of salvation and peace, that are Christ-like in nature and are therefore different from the ways of the world that lead to division and oppression and destruction and all these things that God never intended for our world. The attitudes, words, and actions of the church are supposed to be different from those attitudes and words and actions that are inspired by the ways and the norms of the world, by those who are actively opposing God's will of peace and community and communion of all people. But I I wonder how much you sense this is actually true. Do the attitudes, norms, words, and actions of churches challenge and oppose these Individualistic, judgmental, tribal, critical, impatient, antagonistic, consumeristic, self-serving and protecting norms of our culture? Or or do too many churches mirror them? To be holy is to be counter-cultural. To be holy is to be different as we are Christ-like rather than as we are worldly. So what practices might help us? As individual Christians and as Christian congregations and communities, to prepare our minds for godly and Christ-like action? What action do we understand that we are preparing our minds to help us to undertake? What practices might help us as individual Christians and Christians' communities to discipline ourselves, to ground our hope in God and resist conformity to the ways of the world? What practices might help us as individuals and as congregations to more intentionally seek holiness in all of our conduct. In all of our attitudes and actions and all of our words, all of our hopes and intentions and decisions. All the while knowing that we rest in the love of God. Where this is who we are called to be in this world. So that the words and actions of our lives embody the ways of Jesus and invite and inspire more and more to strengthen their own minds, to gird the loins of their own minds for good and peacemaking action. Like all those neighbors of every race and age and creed who are are joining us in the life-sustaining action at the community cupboard. So that more and more might adopt the discipline place their hope in God's promise and work of salvation, to, and to resist conformity to the ways of the world that oppose that will. Therefore, leading more and more to choose holiness, not as some moral category that makes them somehow superior to others, but in word and deed, in ways that allow them to love and serve others unconditionally, as we were loved first, so that their lives that participate in the reshaping of the world from its broken and incomplete status quo, lacking peace, unto the kingdom of peace that is coming. God help us to gird the loins of our minds, preparing for action, to discipline ourselves in hope and conformity to Christ and to be holy. God help us. Amen.